This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. My guest today is Albert Liu, and Albert's the creator and host of the Power and Market Report. Um, He's also probably the person who most convinced me to start my own podcast. And uh, I guess I guess you didn't fear the competition, Albert. <laughs> Actually, podcasting is is a very collegial atmosphere, and okay, so that, yeah, that's so good. It's, uh, not not at all. Actually, I was actually very eager uh, for you to start podcasting and to and to hear the, your podcast. Well, and uh, you know what I want to talk about today: uh, three completely separate topics, but podcasting is one of them. So, sort of finishing your bio, you're you're also the managing director of WB Wealth Management. Um, but you got a degree in in engineering, so we have a we have a trained engineer who becomes a wealth manager uh, and now a podcaster. Can you give me a little I don't know the story of what led you to launching a podcast and how you got started? It was really a hobby podcast actually, and uh, I started podcasting because I like to listen to podcasts. I remember listening to before we really had podcasting. I remember being just fascinated with online audio content people streaming I thought that was it was uh, such a novel concept and and a great place to get alternative viewpoints so I I was a a listener first and then uh, one day I just uh, my business partner and I were talking I said I think I'm gonna do this because we're always looking for ideas to to reach out to people um, you know generating interest in the company as well but but I thought I'd start just doing it as a hobby and uh, I'm still a hobby podcaster in the sense that you know, I don't derive my income from podcasting, but uh, I have transitioned to the point where I am taking it a lot more seriously, and it's opening doors for me in terms of other things I want to do. So it was uh, just purely, probably like you, just purely for the love of doing it. And, uh, and what I found is actually it's a great way to meet people as well, and that's sort of how you and I have gotten to know each other is actually on my podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it is... It is uh, way more fun than than I imagined. Okay, so when did you when did you first launch as as a hobby? When did you start your podcast? So I've been doing this for probably about two years now. Uh, okay. So I started, uh, you know, and I made every mistake that you could possibly make, and so I'm happy to help anyone who wants to wants to launch. Well, a yeah. Podcast, what what, are, those what mistakes. are some of those mistakes? Yeah. What are some of those mistakes? Okay, so you know it. it we're sort of accustomed to traditional media, so traditional TV, traditional radio, where they cast a really wide net. And if you think about the way a radio station works, it's, it's completely geographically based, right? So they put up a tower and then they just blast so many, you know, uh, megawatts or whatever of power. And they just capture everyone in that radius. So you have to have a really broad appeal, Right. And that's why they're always talking about the weather <laughs> and sports and <laughs> ISIS and stuff like that, because they, they're trying to cater to the lowest common denominator. And, and you absolutely do not want to do that when you're podcasting. Podcasting is all about reaching the niche and being yourself. And you're casting a net that spans the entire globe, uh, basically the entire Internet enabled globe. So there are plenty of people, believe it or not, who will like you for just who you are. And like you, they, I mean, there'll be plenty of people who hate you, but you're not worried about those people because they'll be one and done. They'll listen to you and they'll move on. Uh, but there are a lot of people who will be interested in your unique viewpoint. 
And so the mistake I made was trying to appeal to everyone, or at least trying not to turn off, uh, you know, too many people. And that's why so, my I mean, what, yeah, yeah. What kind of content did you initially like? What kind of uh, topics were you covering? Um, I mean, were you talking about the weather? <laughs> it it almost came to that. I mean, uh, I wanted to do a show really in my heart. I wanted to do a show like uh, Harry Brown had a, a radio show. Uh, several decades ago. He had two, actually. One was on politics and one was on investing. And I wanted to do a kind of a show like that, like one of those two shows. But I was, I was too concerned about turning people off that, that I just kept watering down the content. And you can see even the name. I still carry this name. It's like, it's like my Berkshire Hathaway, right? It's the economy. And that is the most... I should have just called the podcast The Universe, Right, because I just want it to be so vague and so vanilla uh, as to not put anyone off. But but that's where that came from. The economy with Albert Liu is basically I wanted to talk about all things the economy, but but do so in a way that was that was really vanilla, and that was a mistake. I think that the success that I've had has been because I've I've kind of embraced more of uh, you know my own ideas and put those out there as as uncomfortable as it is sometimes. And uh, you get some pushback on it, but then you get some some great fans, some really great loyal fans out of it. So, well, I mean, the you know the competitive edge is you've got something that the one thing that's unique to you is your own set of experiences and ideas, and the more that you bring that to the table, the more you set yourself apart. And not that all businesses have to be really unique to succeed, but in the case of podcasting, if you're talking about generic, uncontroversial, plain vanilla things, you're competing with massive news corporations that have millions of dollars to put into their production value. So there is a market for bland, vanilla, generic stuff. It's just that as a, as a little upstart, you have no competitive advantage there. So you've got, you've got to find something that is more unique to you. Right. And, you know, even in the case where you have a a vanilla provider, something that seems like a commodity service, like a, like a radio station, um, there is a uniqueness factor there in the sense that they have a monopoly on that frequency spectrum in your local area. So they're, they're the only provider of that service that's within you know, reach of your receiver at that point. Or, for instance, the, the generic cafe you go to happens to be the only one that's right there. So there is sort of a, even the product is not unique if you take into account location and all that. It is, it is a unique offering. So that's what you have yeah. to do with podcasting, right? You have to offer something unique. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a different, the, the, the relationship is kind of flipped in radio in a way it's kind of like you have to opt out to not listen to it. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's beaming through the air in your geographical area, whether you want it to or not, if you turn on the radio, there's a handful of stations that are just there and you have to, to opt out of listening to those. Whereas a podcast to even find it, you have to have an interest. Uh, you, you know, it's not just, it's not just there for the taking when you flip on your computer or your smartphone, smartphone, you actually have to be searching for it. So if you're, if you're, if your theme is something so broad that no one's going to specifically search for it, uh, that's, yeah, that's a, a difficulty as well. So you kind of, as you went along, you realized that you wanted to get more and more focused. Um, was it hard for you because now you had to become more controversial and open yourself up to possibly offending people? You know, a little bit, but at the same time, it's kind of a relief because it's an effort to not be yourself. It really is, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an effort to, and and so, yeah, my early podcasts are, were really, were guarded and it was it was difficult to do. 
And uh, now I can just you know get on there and say pretty much anything I want. Um, and and it's, so it's much easier that way. And then you'll also find that the people who listen, you know, they're they're more uh, you know invested in reliable listeners, right? Because because they're really in it for for who you are. So uh, overall, I mean, you just have to get over that initial uh, you know initial concern or fear. Yeah. But once you get well, over I mean, that, I mean, it's fine. I mean, you, it, blogging probably is very much the same too, right? Uh, you're probably afraid of putting stuff out there that people won't like at the beginning. But you know, the the successful bloggers, they just they just write whatever they want. Yeah, you get comfortable with kind of your own your own brand and your own style and and what you're you know what not being afraid to to say what you really believe because it's just so much less stressful to to write to write honestly. Um, so your your show is much better produced uh, than say my show. <laughs> you do you do more um, a little bit more editing and like you know sort of professionalizing it. And you also have a lot of features where your listeners can get uh, transcripts of the show and things like that. I mean, how how many hours do you spend per episode on sort of the whole deal, putting it together, editing it, getting it uh, polished up and, and placed and then promoted? Uh, what's what's the time commitment? You know, a general rule of thumb is uh, three to four times the length of the podcast. The running time is what you should expect to put in. So for a half-hour show, it's like an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, so it's not that bad. And, and I actually end up putting a lot of that time into the show prep, into learning about the guest. That's where the big time comes in. If you're doing an, uh, an interview podcast, that's, that's when the time can blow up far beyond that. But for a regular podcast, if, you're, if, you're, like, if it's a monologue podcast, like the type um, a lot of people do, I know you, you kind of go in between, right? I mean, I mean it's a guest yeah. podcast, but you also do monologues. Those yeah, I reserve I reserve the right to do monologues just in case I can't schedule a guest. Yeah, right. The default monologue <laughs> podcast. Those don't take a lot of time. Maybe three times uh, the running time of the show. So it's not it's not that bad. But say you have a guest on and you have to read their book, then that's you know before you have them on, that's a that's a more significant uh, investment, obviously. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple of people that I know I want to bring on, and I'm kind of pushing them off because I'm, I, I know I need to read their book first. <laughs> so what's the main, I mean, you've been doing it for two years now and it's not your, uh, it's not a, a primary source of income for you. What's the main benefit? I know you do it because you enjoy it, but would you say you have benefited in unexpected ways or, or what have you kind of learned or gained from the process? Yeah, there's actually a lot there, Isaac. And, and this process has taught me a lot about business, believe it or not, uh, because you know, when I first started, I would always look for kind of a, like a, a linear trajectory, you know, cause and effect, uh, do this, receive that in return. And uh, what I've discovered kind of, kind of late in my life is that the world doesn't really work that way. So uh, the, all of the benefits that I've accrued through podcasting, they're things that I never would have guessed, actually. You know, I just thought I was going to go on here and just um, start talking and have a little fun, which is what happened. But uh, the first thing I guess I'd noticed is that I've, I've definitely honed my skills as a speaker. And uh, I seem to be getting better and better at it the more I do it, I guess, which is natural. Uh, that's been a tremendous benefit. I've met a lot of people. It's uh, given me an excuse to reach out to people like you and other people and get to know them better. 
And uh, that's been just a tremendous benefit, just personally, but also from the business side. I have, I have all sorts of connections now that I wouldn't have had if I didn't start doing this. Mm. So that's another benefit. And um, I don't know. And then there's all the people now that know me, and, and I don't know them yet. Uh, but uh, occasionally you do meet people who listen to you on, on the show and uh, that, it kind of jumpstarts your relationship, right? Because they already know a little bit about you, so you already have something in common. So it's been good from that point of view, too. I've met people who listen to the show. Uh, so it's just been, you know, win-win all around, actually. Uh, the, uh, the benefit you mentioned about, you know, having a pretext for interesting conversations. Now, I've only, I've only got about uh, 12, you know, episodes in the bag, but I've found it's so, so powerful when you when you're thinking in terms of I've got to put out this podcast I've got to have an, a con some topic somebody to talk with you start to realize how much more interesting a lot of people around you are than you thought and I think part of the reason is not everyone you know writes down or shares their thoughts with the world unprompted but in a Q&A type setting almost everyone actually has like pretty interesting uh, outlooks and philosophies on life. And, and sometimes they haven't even expressed them explicitly uh, to themselves. But when asked a question, you draw something out of it. And that, that's one thing I learned when I was doing um, fundraising was just asking questions, asking people about their success, about their life. I became so much more interested in people than I was before. I just realized how many interesting things people have to say, but they often don't know it unless they're asked questions. Uh, so that's been really fun for me to just, you know, I, it's like, I feel like I want to interview everyone now because you just draw out a lot of good stuff. Right. And you know, people, who, especially people who are successful, there's always a good story in there somewhere. And, uh, what I found is that people don't often, often pause and reflect to, to really pull out the lessons. They just sort of, you know, they just sort of implicitly have these lessons that, that they, uh, that, you know, and rules that they formed and experiences that they benefited from, but they haven't reflected on them. And so sometimes it's really interesting if you're talking to someone who hasn't gone through that exercise and you say, well, what do you, you know, why do you think you did that? And you dig deeper and then you find the reasons. And it's kind of, a, it's, it's kind of, it's a great experience for me and sometimes for the, the subject of the interview as well as they explore these things for the first time. Oh, absolutely. All right. I want to completely change gears and topics uh, but we're sticking with a theme, and the only thing that draws these topics together is the letter P. So we're moving from <laughs> from podcasting to parenting. Um, you are a parent. You have uh, two children. What are their ages? I can't remember. So, uh, yeah, my daughter is six, and my son is, uh, he's about a year and a half. Okay. So what I, I want to ask you as a parent and someone who shares um, a deep interest and in, in commitment to, uh, to the principles of liberty. Um, how does that philosophical outlook, which is primarily at least seen as a, a political philosophy, does that impact your parenting and uh, the way that you raise and educate your kids? And if so, how? Sometimes it's a lot easier to be the guy asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I'm finding. It's it's funny, Isaac, because you know, leading up to this, I was thinking, oh, you know, I don't do this. I don't sit on this side of the interview. I wonder what it's going to be like. 
and thought, oh, there's a lot of things I could do, and I'm going to resist the temptation of taking charge of the interview, and I'm also going to resist the, the temptation of being a really lousy guest, you know, with the one-word answers, which would be <laughs> funny just to watch you struggle with that. I'm sure eventually, if you haven't already, you'll come across that. Uh, but th that's, a, that's a good question. So does it affect my parenting? Obviously, it does. And the fact that, that uh, my wife and I waited later than most people do also changes things because we tend to be... We tend to think things through a little bit more, you know, with more experience. So being older parents, um, you think things through. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, affected. Uh, basically, we're raising kids in, uh, in a world that in a lot of ways we think is really messed up, right? So, and it's, and it's everywhere. So, uh, for instance, um, you, you know, non-aggression, right? I mean, I, I don't believe... I, I'm a blockian or a blockhead, as I like to refer to, when it comes to non-aggression in kids. I, I, I feel that NAP doesn't apply to kids, but I, I also think that you, sh you, know, you shouldn't resort to violence. So we've embraced peaceful parenting. Uh, we've embraced uh, unschooling and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, I've noticed things. So for instance, I've noticed that kids in general, if you just, if you don't indoctrinate them, they they kind of have these you know anarchist tendencies already uh, built in, which is very fascinating. So, in terms of you know you talk about uh, libertarianism as a political philosophy, um, I just we just avoid it. I, me in particular, I just avoid the topic. We don't talk about things that, uh, for instance, things that you and I would talk about the state and and the police and. Uh, so so when, with your kids, you don't um, you don't have any explicit, hey, we want to teach our kids these principles. However, your belief in uh, libertarian principles does inform you in some ways in the way that you uh, parent and the way that you you see your kids and the decisions that they make. Would that be a fair characterization? I think so. You know, the, my studies in libertarianism affect the way that I buy hamburgers <laughs> and, and everything else I do. You know, cause <laughs> it's it's just all encompassing, right? Because of the economics and all that. So it it, it kind of touches on everything I do. But uh, but uh, yeah, I would agree with that. And and one thing that maybe we do that that is different from a lot of people is I, I don't want to immerse her on the political philosophy. I mean, she's definitely not reading <laughs> anatomy of the state or anything like that. Uh, it, it's just, I've discovered that uh, there's sort of a purity um, yeah. uh, to, to children uh, at that age. And if you just don't introduce these things, it, it wouldn't even occur to them that, you know, for instance, one person should tell someone else how to live. Uh, yeah. What, you know, it just doesn't even occur to, me, to them. Yeah. If you're raised, in an environment where you have a, a tremendous amount of freedom, whether or not you ever encounter any arguments, whether from, you know, utilitarian perspective or, a, you know, natural rights perspective, if you never encounter arguments for the, the value of, of human liberty, but you've just been accustomed to it, it will seem so foreign and offensive to you when someone says, uh, no, you're not allowed to purchase a 64-ounce soft drink because it's bad for you. Yeah, you you'll, you'll be truly like stunned and, and weirded out by that. Why would anyone tell me what to do? This just seems bizarre. If you've lived free, it's almost like you don't need to discover freedom as an intellectual um, pursuit in order to, to be opposed to, to tyranny. I, I completely agree with that observation. I find it, I find it really interesting. Well, let me play sort of a devil's advocate here with this approach with your kids. 
So inevitably, they're going to confront um, bad ideas. They're going to confront authority figures who um, want to teach them or indoctrinate them, or even just in the movies they watch. We watched uh, the the remake of Annie the other night, me and my kids, and largely a really good movie, but there's some some lines in there just sort of praising you know, the New Deal and government for saving people. Kids are going to encounter this stuff. So what would you say to the person who says, look, if I don't give them the truth, they're going to be fed lies and that could be dangerous. That's that's a big problem, actually. And we're experiencing that now. I mean, uh, school age kids is pretty much, you know, that that's where it starts. And uh, you look at, for instance, the uh, the movies, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a monarchy, right? Every girl wants to be a princess or something like that. <laughs> so it's definitely a problem. Uh, but um I don't know how I'm going to deal with that, um, but it, it's kind of funny. Like, I guess people who know me would maybe be surprised to hear me this, but I, I don't want to talk about these things. Like, these are I would rather talk about sex actually with my kids <laughs> than talk about the state, uh, because yeah, I could just imagine a scene. Your kids like, Dad, um, what what was that police officer doing over there? And you know, you sort of look around uncomfortably and say. Hey, uh, so your body's been changing lately. <laughs> you know what? That exact thing has almost happened. That exact thing. I squirm uh, because it's the only time I've I've been dishonest. I think with my daughter was was that exact situation, um, and uh, you know it was a typical situation where we live. I mean, all the cops do is sit around and wait for you know hardworking people to come home from work so they can ticket them for not having the right sticker or for driving on a white line or something like that. And so that scene plays out in front of our house like every week, right? And she asks, you know, what, why is that guy stopped? And, uh, and I knew exactly what was going on. Uh, it was a shakedown. But I told her, I said, well, I don't know. Maybe he needs help. I'm not sure. And uh, that's probably the only time I've been dishonest with her. I, I would much rather have had a discussion with her about babies and how babies are made because, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's so funny. You mentioned that because I've, I've had this. So my oldest, uh, is 10. And so, you know, he's, he's gotten to the point where he, he pushes a lot more. He's, he's more relentless with his questioning and answers that used to suffice no longer do. But I, I found the same thing where, you know, when, when, when I have all this n- years of knowledge, both from experience, uh, you know, even I, I worked within the political system at one point, um, and just all the, the kind of studying and, and intellectual journey I've been on looking at the way that governments work, all the warped incentives in there. And so when I see someone pulled over, for example, you know, I know kind of the most likely thing that's happening and I know the historical origin. It's, it's just like you said, a shakedown. It's, it's a revenue source, you know, the, it's just a, a big, and, and I, I grumble. I don't like it. I really, you know, haven't had almost any pleasant interactions with police in my lifetime. I, I find them, they don't make me feel more safe. They make me feel less safe. But I don't want to, I don't want to deliver prepackaged to my kid a bunch of conclusions that I had to struggle and, and have a, a really intense intellectual journey to come to because I, I don't think there's any real value there if it's just this is true because my dad told me it's true or I don't like, you know, I get grumpy when I see police because my dad does. I, I don't think there's anything healthy about that. Um, and so I, I always want to resist that urge. And so I've, I've taken a similar tack as you to say things like, 
I don't know. Who knows? There's all kinds of laws about, uh, you know, safety. Maybe they had a broken blinker. Um, you know, I don't know. And my son will say, well, that seems like it's stupid. That seems over the top, you know, things like that. And I'll say, well, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't hard to know. And I just kind of, you know, brush it off. But the more he's, he's pursued questioning, what's interesting is he, I find myself almost defending, <laughs> defending, um, or at least trying to present in the most positive light possible things that I think are really stupid, like arbitrary rules and regulations of the state, because my son almost immediately goes to like, that just seems dumb. Why would they tell this person what to do? And I want to make sure he's not getting positive reinforcement from me. Like, yeah, yeah, it's stupid. You know? Um, and I want to make sure he's thinking critically, but it puts me in an awkward position. I would, I just want the subject to change. I don't really know how to handle that. <laughs> you know, I don't want to just throw a book at him and be like, go study this before you form an opinion. But um, it's an awkward situation as a parent with, with a radical set of beliefs that I don't want to impose on my kids. Yeah. At the same time, though, you feel an obligation to be honest. Right. And yes. so that's why that's that's where that feeling of discomfort comes from, because, uh, you know, it's it's like I said, I don't I'm not going to have my daughter read Anatomy of the State at the same time. I don't want to pretend that uh, nothing sinister is going on. So, so, so far, I've just kind of, um, I've avoided it when possible. And I, I just, I don't know how to say it. I just um, tread very lightly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I don't want to feed her conclusions either. That, that I, I agree with you on that. But, but I stopped short of defending the state. <laughs> if she wants to come to those yeah. conclusions on her own, good for her. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always try really hard to, to kind of base things on a rational choice um, perspective and, and convey to my son, look, there are certain laws, regulations, realities that are um, good or bad in the world. It doesn't always mean that the bad things exist because everyone involved is a bad person, right? So, um, you know, if if public school is something that my son sees as like, you know, ridiculously conformist and, and almost prison like. And he kind of he kind of does have that opinion. He's always sort of shocked by what he hears from the kids at school, how much their life is regimented. And he's very turned off by that. And I always just try to remind him that there's a lot of incentives at play. So it doesn't mean that every like that teachers are bad people uh, or that it's it's it, to go to the good versus evil narrative I think it's very unhelpful and often closes down a deeper understanding. And I try to at least convey that, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of complex institutions around us that people are basically just trying to avoid pain. And um, because something is a is a bad law or a bad institution or leads to bad outcomes doesn't necessarily mean that it's just because there are bad or evil people uh, behind it and, and trying to 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 take away that simple morality, you know, tale that is conveyed in the movies, uh, that everything is about good and evil. And, and history is a great way to do that, to, to show historical examples of, you know, people who were a part of oppressive regimes, but they didn't necessarily believe in those things. They just didn't see any way to exit or, or, or things like that. How, how old is your son, Isaac? I've forgotten. He's 10. Okay. So he's a bit further along. I, I we don't talk about laws per se. I, I know my daughter is aware of them. Uh, because she she gets it mostly from other people, other other kids, and uh, I'm not sure where TV or whatever. But I, I, you know, I haven't. St you've obviously put a lot of effort into thinking about policy 
and those types well, of things. I'm a lay person when it comes to that. So. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of the reasons why Albert, and you probably will find this if you're, if you're unschooling, uh, we live in a lovely neighborhood, but, um, surprisingly nobody else in our neighborhood unschools <laughs> and there's a very, uh, a reality when your kids get to school age, um, there's a very real danger that if a seven-year-old kid is out there riding his bike through the neighborhood or just doing kid stuff on a school day, um, a, a neighbor very well may may call social services or uh, the police and say, this child is wandering around without his parents. You know, um, that's I, I try not to be sensational and, and live based on fear, but that's happened enough times to enough decent people that I know that's possible. So my kids need to be aware that certain laws and regulations and viewpoints exist and that like, look, most people don't unschool. Most people are a little bit worried when they see kids unattended riding their bike uh, during a school day. And there are even laws that could get us into trouble or have people trying to take you away from us. And I try not to scare them too much, but there are certain contexts where they need to know and be aware. Um, and I think kids are pretty good if you if you convey just enough of the fact that there's some reason to be cautious and judicious about what you say and when you can be outside. So I've, I kind of feel like my hand has been forced in some ways that we have to talk about certain things just as a as a safety measure. That's a scary thought. When, when did that first become an issue with you, with your son? Um, well, probably probably around you know six or seven. Once he could no longer pass for someone who's just too too young to be in school and. You know, my wife going like grocery shopping or whatever, occasionally people will ask, oh, uh, why aren't you in school? And my son will just say, I don't go to school <laughs> or, you know, so we've told him, just say you're homeschooled and like we kind of do a homeschool, but it's mostly unschooling. And he's like, but it's more like unschooling. I'm like, yeah, I know, but just say that because people have at least heard of that and they're a little less worried. And we just started to notice. I mean, I grew up homeschooled um, in a time where it was even more um you know, look, sort of people were more skeptical and afraid of it. And so I grew up, I was very, very used to as a child, uh, not going certain places during the day, not saying certain things just to be safe and to be cautious. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of were just forced to, to confront that through a few interactions that made us realize, oh, kids are getting older now. We got to just be a little bit cautious. Yeah, I think the homeschool way is the way to go with that because, like you said, it has been normalized to an extent. Uh, unschooling is—I I think it's—people uh, have no idea what that is, and right. Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so with your with your kids, Albert, did you before? Because you said you had kids a little bit later um, in life than many people. Before you had kids, had you already arrived at the conclusion that you wanted to? you know, unschool them and, and, um, you know, in, engage in peaceful parenting and things like that? Or was this something that you, a conclusion you came to after you had kids and you just sort of saw what it was like firsthand? Yeah, it was definitely after. I think, you know, <laughs> I think sometimes as parents, we forget that people who don't have kids, they don't think about kids. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to think about kids. And I was definitely like that. Before I had kids, I had absolutely no interest in children. So we, we never even thought about it. And even after we had kids, uh, school was kind of n not really a consideration for a while. Uh, and, and I'd be happy to send them to a, to a school, but it's just, 
the state of the schools now is just it's just so I don't know it's it's so problematic that I just can't see putting my kids in 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 that environment right now anyway. I mean, I so did, it wasn't like a a book that you read or anything that that made you come to this conclusion. It was more just assessing what the schools looked like around you. Yeah, the options, right? Just 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 looking at the options and uh, yeah. not seeing anything that um, that I was comfortable with. I mean, the, yeah. I think the main problem is I mean, talk about you can call it state indoctrination or whatever, but um, I just think that the they introduce concepts too early. Well, I think, uh, back up, I mean, uh, the government kind of corrupts and debases everything it touches. So the fact that they're involved in schools means that the education is not going to be very good, right? When you talk about reading and writing and math and those things. But beyond that, they introduce kids to things that I think they're not ready for in terms of the history and that sort of thing. They're just not ready for those ideas. And then obviously the conclusions that they draw uh, about certain things like the New Deal and all that, I find you know, offensive, right? Or just, yeah. just incorrect. So th- that's probably the big problem is that it's not what they're not getting because you can always, you could always compensate for that, um, at home, but it's, it's, uh, the stuff that they are getting. That's, I think it's problematic. How radical are you in your unschooling? I mean, do you plan to have a kind of structure or any kind of curriculum and teach your kids certain things? Or, um, are you going to, completely let them, you know, sort of self-direct and, and explore whatever they want to. I can't answer that now because I don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's possible that, that we could find a school we like and, and then my kids could just go to school. Um, my wife is a lot more traditional and conservative than I am. So going this way has been a challenge for her. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if it was just up to me, I would... Uh, my dad kind of had this philosophy to just let them do what they want. I mean, yeah. I wasn't homeschooled, but uh, he was pretty hands-off. And I, I, I would be as radical as they come if it was just me, but it's it's not just me. So we've experimented with curriculum, and that was a disaster. <laughs> it's a complete disaster. <laughs> um, that's, that's usually the way it works. You start <laughs> off with a big ideas of, of homeschooling, and uh, you become more and more in the direction of unschooling as you realize... <laughs> How, how difficult it is and how little it yields in return. It was the other way, actually. So I, I convinced my wife to go for the unschooling. And then she was concerned that, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't going according to a schedule. So we tried a, a curriculum for a while, and that was a complete disaster. And uh, <laughs> so, so I think I've won some time for a while. But we'll see. I don't know. Like I said, the, the great thing about this method is that it's not a commitment. It's not a life commitment. We could yeah. decide next year that we want to put her in the second grade or the first grade or whatever and just do it. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, so um, I want to end with a final topic, again, completely unrelated to the previous two, except by uh, the letter P. The, the New England Patriots. You are a huge New England Patriots fan. Uh, I'm a big NFL fan myself and have a tremendous amount of respect for the Patriots. Um, first, I've never actually asked you this. Did you? Why are you a Patriots fan? Did you grow up in Boston? No, but I did live there. So okay. uh, I grew up in Canada, and uh, I didn't really follow any single NFL team when I, li- when I lived in, in Canada. But then I moved to, uh, to Massachusetts. That's where I first came when I moved down here um, 20 years ago, actually. And so I just adopted them as, as my team. And, uh, you know, things were not, back then, were not like they were now, like they are now. But 
but uh, it was a promising team and it was a local team. So I just got into it that way. And it's so, also so your yeah, your love of the Patriots is not uh, based on logic and reason and the fact that they're so excellent. It's based on a more primal tribalistic <laughs> geographical affinity or is it? Both? Yeah, it's horrible, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, it's it's exactly the latter. It's just the fact that they were there and, um, you know. I, there's something within us, right, that wants to cheer for the local team. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. And it was an exciting time for them, right? They went to the Super Bowl in 96. I think it was 96. Um, you'd so, be lucky you didn't move from Canada to, to Michigan. No kidding, huh? Yeah, you'd <laughs> no be kidding. a depressed Lions fan. So so the Patriots, they are uh, a great example of, and we talked about this a little bit on uh, one of your podcast episodes with the whole deflate gate thing, but a great example of highly successful um, organization. They are undeniably amazing at what they do, uh, especially uh, Bill Belichick. But they're often portrayed as like evil, like sinister. Um, you know, there's there's something about them that's that's villainous or uh, if anything, just cold hearted, like, you know, they'll they'll cut Vince Wilfork, one of their great players, um, because he's at the twilight of his career and they want to save money. They're sort of cutthroat. I mean, do you make does that make you love them more or do you think there's anything to those criticisms? I think it's it's just uh, symptomatic of something that that uh, that, that troubles society. And that is um, people people hate profit. Have you noticed that this is, um, <laughs> if you study like business and investing, people hate profit. And I think that's a real problem, I think. And, and so with the Patriots that they people hate success. And, uh, you know, it's um, you're not supposed to act in self-interest and all of that stuff. And, and I, I think it's a it's a greater problem. So it, do, it doesn't make me like them more or less. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just it's one of those things that gets to me, actually, that um, like, have you ever heard uh, you deal with uh, young people? Have you ever heard someone kind of uh, going through college saying, oh, when I graduate, I want to work for a nonprofit? Oh, I mean, the, almost the number one thing, anyone outside of, uh, you know, hard science majors, they all say something like, I want to be a um, social entrepreneur, like as if the word social, you know, adds any meaning to it. Um, uh, the thing I usually think of is, oh, you mean subsidized? Um, or, <laughs> you know, I want to I want to work for the greater good. Uh, I want to be in a nonprofit. And it's like, well, you do realize a nonprofit is only a tax designation that allows you to, to not pay taxes. There's nothing there's nothing inherently noble about being in a, um, you know, organization that doesn't pay taxes, except the fact that it means fewer tax dollars are going to <laughs> going to the state. But I mean, I hear that all the time that this this belief that is, you know, if you're doing something because you want the enterprise to succeed, um, that's somehow bad. Right. And if you're doing something because, you know, even if it's bad for the enterprise, because it's good for the world at large, as if anyone has enough knowledge to know that, that it's somehow good. I mean, that's a, a very, very common, common viewpoint. And so that well, that gets, so with no the Patriots, end. no, absolutely. And with the Patriots, do you think it's perhaps because there are forms of success that are widely celebrated in the world of sports, um, but there's something about the unapologetic nature of the Patriot organization and of Bill Belichick. Like they don't have any, they don't, you know, mince words. They don't, they don't give the media fun little tidbits um, or, you know, make them feel special and there's no sort of 
there's no apology for their success or for their strategies. And I think being an apologetic, uh, success is deemed more acceptable, perhaps. I don't know. What do you think about that? Exactly. We talked about this when I had you on my show. Look at Warren Buffett. This yeah. guy's, I mean, he's, he's made a ton of money. He, um, avoids taxes. He got bailout money, uh, through his companies and, but people love him. Why do they love him? And it's because of, I think this posturing, right? I mean, I admire him just for his business acumen, right? But why do most people like him is because he's seen as uh, the apologetic billionaire, as opposed to, for example, a private equity guy or, you know, someone else who um, goes in and, and does the real, you know, the, the, the unpleasant stuff. So restructures, uh, you know, lays people off and so on and so forth uh, and doesn't apologize for it. People, you know, society hates that guy, right? Yeah. So, um, Patriots predictions, I mean, they're coming off an amazing year, amazing Super Bowl win, but Tom Brady is not as young as he once was. Uh, they're losing some, you know, older, highly skilled players. What do, I mean, what do you think as a Patriots fan? I, this has got to be really hard because as a Lions fan, we always think, well, next year will be better because it basically has to be better. Um, but then again, you know, it's like you never really expect much. You don't know. As a Patriots fan, it seems like no matter what your personnel is, you like win your division, make the playoffs. I mean, the day when the dynasty ends, I don't think anyone's going to see it coming. Well, I mean, do you expect the Patriots to perform just as well next year? Probably not. Um, and, you know, I, I identify as a Patriots fan, but I'm becoming more and more of a football fan uh, because I'm not there anymore. And I just enjoy watching it just so happens that these guys really have their have it together. And yeah. I, I think, will they be as good? Yeah. One thing I've noticed about Belichick is that he needs, and this is kind of like, I guess, you know, specific football talk, but he needs good play at the cornerback position. You look at the good teams that they've had. It's when they have uh, someone, uh, someone who can cover that position really well. And then the last couple of years when they have gotten bounced out relatively early, it's because they've had injuries at that position. No, they have that, they have that bend don't break approach. And when they've gotten knocked out, it's, it's, if you can stop those big plays and who do they get beat by, they get beat by the Ravens who do nothing but run the ball for two yards over and over and then have a giant 90 yard pass. So that, that that's a, that's a great observation. The need yeah. For, for cornerbacks. Yeah, they definitely need that. And so, Losing that their their corner, Darrell Rivas, uh, in the offseason is going to be tough. Um, but two things: if if they draft well, well, one thing that Patriots do probably better than anyone else is not only the draft but coaching them up. So yeah. you, what you'll find is the Patriots will draft a couple young DBs, and by the end of the season they won't be playing like rookies anymore. They'll be they'll be coached up so well that uh, they'll be playing like you know like. Uh, more like veteran players. So if they can do that, then uh, or or they you know acquire someone, uh, you know, they could be just as good. But but the thing about losing Rivas and Wilfork is, I guess if you can't get a great player at a reasonable price, what you want to have is you want to have your divisional uh, rivals uh, obtain that talent at an overinflated price, right? Because it hurts them yeah. down the road. And so that's exactly what's happened, right? With, I mean, you, <laughs> your team lost a good free agent too, but what you find is that the, the teams that acquire them, they pay way too much. 
And so yeah. this is like investing, right? It's like, you know, you could you can overpay for a great company and get and get burned, get get little value out of it. And I think yeah. that's what what's going on here. No, I mean, it's it's sell high and the Patriots are, are the best at, uh, at that of anybody. I mean, how many how many great runs have they made into the postseason and some no name wide receiver is all of a sudden, you know, really heralded at the end of the season? Somebody else signs them for ridiculous amounts of money and they go back to be <laughs> to be an average, you know. So, um, all right. So let's, let's get your prediction wins and losses. And this is going to be in the, in the record books and we can return to it at the end of the season. How many wins do you think wow. the Patriots are going to get? Well, that's good. Well, uh, I think they're going to win the division. So we'll go with okay. that. Um, I think Buffalo surprisingly, their personnel is looking a lot better. And so I think it's going to be tougher this year. I'll predict, I'll predict 12 wins. <laughs> that's a Patriots fan saying it's going to be a tough year. It's going to be kind of a down <laughs> year. <laughs> 12 wins as a Lions fan would be heaven. Albert, thank you so much for joining me to talk about podcasting, parenting, and the Patriots. My guest again has been Albert Liu. You can find his podcast at powerandmarket.com. Albert, thanks for coming on. Isaac, my pleasure. Thanks a lot.